The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by journalist, researcher, bona fide, public money wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome. <laughs> always good to be here. So our focus for today is recent developments in Washington, D.C., and in particular, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. That's a piece of legislation with major implications for state and local finance. We're fortunate to be joined by Emily Brock from the Government Finance Officers Association. Uh, She works at their federal policy shop in Washington, D.C., and she's going to break down for us all the highlights of the IRA and how it fits together with the federal government's uh, COVID relief legislation, the infrastructure bill, and all of the other major recent federal laws passed in D.C. Liz, you've written extensively about all of these legislative developments. Uh, So to start us off today, just give us a bit of context for how all this action in DC could affect state and local finance as we know it. Yeah, who would ever ever thought, um, you know, four or five years ago that this much federal funding would be approved, period. And then this much federal funding would be available to state and local governments. Right. Uh, right. It's it's rather mind blowing, you know, for many, many years. What I wrote about was about how the federal government isn't helping state and local governments, <laughs> you know, and and now it's like drinking through a fire hose. I mean, that's how, you know, a lot of officials feel at this point, um, you know, between the pandemic and then all the money that's become available. And so. You know, it started with the American Rescue Plan, with the Infrastructure Jobs Act, and then we had this, you know, then it seemed like that was it. And then all of a sudden, really, the the Inflation Reduction Act or, or Climate Bill. And um, something I wrote about recently in Long Story Short, that, uh, that I, I came up with this concept after the Infrastructure and Jobs Act was passed, but it, it definitely still applies to the Climate Bill. And I started noticing you know, the same kind of language in in both the bills that were passed in the uh, notices notices of funding opportunities, um, the, the rules around how to spend money for state and local governments with the American Rescue Plan, and these words, uh, you know, engage or engagement, equity, <clears throat> environment, and evidence in some hmm. form or another kept popping up over and over again. Hmm. And 
and I, so I landed upon this, you know, I was like, well, they all start with E, right? And, <laughs> and <laughs> which is really handy if you're a writer, you like to come up with these <laughs> right. shortcuts. So, and if you like alliteration. Sure. So, oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. So as we do with this podcast. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, to shorten it, I was like, okay, the four E's, the four E's are engagement, equity, environment, and evidence. And, um, and I was asked, you know, at some point uh, around this time to give a talk on just the American Rescue Plan. And then, the, and then I found a way to weave in the Infrastructure and Jobs Act as well. And so what I wrote about recently for Long Story Short was sort of how, how these words are tie all of these, you know, kind of the principles behind this, this legislation together. And, and a lot of it is, you know, if you go back to President Biden's first days in office, he announced the Justice 40 initiative, which is an environmental justice initiative. Mm -hmm. And the idea is the 40 refers to that 40% of the benefits of investment will will go towards disadvantages, disadvantaged communities. And so keeping that in mind, that 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 right there gets at equity and environment, but also it gets at engagement because you need to engage those communities that are going to be affected by your investment. And, and a lot of the language also around the rules for how to spend this money is they want evidence-based policies. Uh, in some cases, uh, for governments that are doing their ARPA reporting, they have to talk about what evidence-based policies um, they are implementing or using to, to, to design a program. So this stuff is in the ARPA rules, it's in the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, and I think one, um, you know, we talk about this in another episode as well, but there's one program uh, called the Reconnecting Communities Pilot that sort of embodies a lot of, of what this is. And the Reconnecting Communities Pilot is money towards, um, you know, kind of reversing the effects of urban renewal when uh, Congress doled out, right, a bunch of money to sure. build sure. highways that would cut through cities effectively cutting off one half of the city from the other and no coincidence the you know half that got cut off from the economic center of the city was also you know the a community that was majority minority um they had no say in what was going on and and effectively were cut off from you know kind of the economic growth and investment of the rest of the city and so when you consider all of the impacts of that uh looking at engagement. Well, there was no engagement then. Um, looking at equity, it created this inequity. Looking at the environment, think about all the, you know, pollution that occurred in this this neighborhood because of all the, you know, semis going by and all of that stuff. Um, and then, so, you know, this Reconnecting Communities pilot kind of seeks to undo that uh, by providing funding to cover up those freeways or underground them. Um, but they also want evidence in terms of, okay, how are you, how do you know this is going to work? Um, what are you doing to track, um, you know, these, these particular effects? And how are you going to report on that? And so, you know, that, that in, in one kind of program embodies a lot of these themes that, that I've seen over and over again. And same goes for the climate bill. In another episode, we're going to talk more specifically about environmental justice. Um, but again, it's, you know, I, policymakers that kind of, in my view, uh, look at these four E's and look at programs they they have that that speak to them, 
um, you know, they're going to find a funding outlet somewhere, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, with their existing American Rescue Plans, with the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, and now with the Climate Bill, that that will help, that will be applicable to whatever their, their that program is. So the four E's, that makes a lot of sense. And with certainly the federal state local relationship on infrastructure is nothing new, right? That, that's been the case since really the federal highways were, uh, were founded in the, in the fifties. There's always been this kind of intergovernmental relationship between the federal government and states and localities. A lot of it having to do with the way the federal government sends money down to states and localities. Infrastructure makes a lot of sense because that's been something that has been in place for a long time, but you could see the, the four E's that you just described also then playing out in other settings. Like it could certainly be a four E's for redefining the way the federal government is involved in public education, redefining the way the federal government Ooh. finances programming in areas like public safety or healthcare or whatever it might be. I mean, it would have been unthinkable not that long ago that we would see local governments playing a, an active role in some of these big picture community and economic development programs that you're describing. And so who's then to say that they can't be just as broad in scope in the context of say education or other things? Do you, do you see the four E's maybe unfolding as, as the basis for a, a very different kind of federal state local fiscal partnership going forward? That's a great question. I think that, especially I hadn't thought about education too. Um, I think it honestly, sadly, honestly, it, it depends on who's in the White House. And, you know, this administration is, you know, I've, I've met some of the people, a lot of them came from the Obama administration too. And, you know, they're very evidence-based, you know, mm -hmm. policy focused. They're very into like civic tech type stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, doing things that works, kind of diagnosing and getting at the problem, that kind of stuff. And, 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 you know, with the pandemic, I think it has highlighted equity issues across the board. I don't think that discussion is necessarily going away. Right. But I do think if, um, if a different person is in the White House, um, and, and appointing all of the other, you know, folks in charge of, of the, the different cabinet posts, with a different ideology, then you might get some some kind of diluting of you know the idea of what is equity and certainly less focus on environmental justice and, and some of these these other things. And that's I mean, that's the nature with state and local governments too, right? Sure. Um sure. It, it depends on who's in charge and, and who's making the rules. But um, you know, I, I society overall, right, we have seen more of this focus on evidence, particularly in state and local governments. Um, engagement mm -hmm. with the American Rescue Plan was off the charts, um, you know, right up in, in the in 2021, when it was passed, I mean, local governments were, were all about that. So I do think some of this stuff is here to stay, but how much it gets kind of stuck in the rulemaking process mm -hmm. and in mm -hmm. actual bill uh, language, I think really, you know, it depends on who's in charge. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's like, that's an excellent point. And, uh, no one is necessarily against evidence or against engagement. It just comes down to what <laughs> kind of evidence and engagement we're, we're talking about. Right. And, and who is, who's right. determining what kind of evidence and engagement, uh, is, is high is prioritized. Right? Great stuff as always. And, uh, look forward to seeing the kinds of things you have to say about this, uh, going forward, Liz, great work.
Thanks. We are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod now, Emily Brock. Emily comes to us from the Government Finance Officers Association, which of course is the main professional association for state and local government finance folks around the country. She heads up their federal relations shop, so there's nobody better to talk about the federal, state, local financial interactions as of late, and there's been lots to talk about, which is why we thought she'd be a great guest to have here today. So Emily Brock, welcome to the Public Money Pot. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So we've talked quite a bit about these major pieces of federal legislation that have made their way through the Biden administration over the last several months. And of course, the most recent being the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. I wonder, Emily, if you could just first and foremost, at kind of a 30,000 foot level, tell us about the arc of all of this federal legislation and specifically the the IRA and what you think both the IRA and just collectively what this broader federal legislative effort is going to mean for state and local finance? Sure. So thanks for the question. So um, in in our work that we've been doing, of course, since um, the 2020 uh, pandemic began, the COVID-19 pandemic began, was a conversation that um, spans, obviously, administrations. It spans congressional um, uh, election cycles. Um, it was a general narrative, a general conversation that we continued to have with our federal leadership about challenges that were being posed to local governments throughout the past several years. And um, you mentioned the IRA, um, the Inflation Reduction Act. That's the name itself actually comes from the way that it's funded and how it's funded. Um, there is a $700 billion that goes to fund about $350 billion, So that leaves about $350 billion for inflation reduction. So it, it kind of it, it describes what it does both from a monetary perspective, but it, it lost sort of the more subjective title, which is what does it do? And what it does actually was uh, a title that we gave it throughout its development, which is called the Healthcare Slash Climate Bill not a sexy name, but the healthcare slash climate bill was more descriptive about what it does. Of course, the healthcare portion of it had to do with prescription cost reduction, but the climate part was much bigger, much broader, and a lot more um, kind of uh, put into that portion of the bill. And by that, what I mean is climate climate and a a conversation about climate and sustainability metrics and things of that nature all fell into the climate side. And it could be that inside of the climate section, you might find benefits for retail customers or individuals. You could find benefits for commercial customers like businesses or even government. So a lot of stuff fell into the IRA that had a lot to do with healthcare and climate, but the functionality of it was to reduce inflation. I'm glad, Emily, that you, uh, you know, this whole time I've been saying, oh, it's just, it's the climate bill, but yeah, healthcare is, <laughs> healthcare is in there, reducing the cost of, uh, of um, you know, prescriptions and, and, and other things has been a huge goal for quite some time. I'm, I'm curious, does that, particularly thinking about Medicare and Medicaid, does that, how does that impact, um, I guess this, this will be state governments, but some of that must trickle down in terms of, of pensions and healthcare, healthcare costs and that kind of thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Anytime that there is a reduction of healthcare costs, that, I mean, as, as local governments are primarily 
human resources machines, we employ people and people provide those public services. That then becomes a derivative effect that then would at least uh, for what it's worth from a prescription medication perspective might have some effects on local government finance as well. We've we've talked about some of the sort of specific kinds of potential opportunities that local governments you know might might face or might have as a result of of all of this legislation, but the area in particular, and certainly a lot of the emphasis in this most recent bill seems to be around investments, around climate climate mitigation. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that and and just in your experience whether that is a continuation of a trend or you think maybe kind of a new trend phasing uh, local government finance. It seems maybe 10 years ago, we didn't necessarily think of local governments as on the front lines of financing climate mitigation, but here we are now, and here we have a major piece of federal legislation that seems to back up that point. So just talk more generally about where you see those sort of local investments in climate mitigation infrastructure, climate adaptation happening and whether you think this is something we can expect to see more of in future similar legislation. So I think that's a great point that you bring up that maybe um, maybe local governments haven't advertised the extent to which they have done climate mitigation efforts. I think that there um, are, are, are strong programs and policies put in place at many local government levels that were specifically identified to um, address some of that climate change. Here I am on the I'm on the East Coast. Um, I could name a half dozen cities that have climate mitigation efforts in place. Now, one of the biggest hangups, though, for local governments was how do you communicate that? How do you communicate that to a the investors of your bonds? or be any other stakeholders inside of your organization. I happen to live in Alexandria, Virginia. There's significant efforts for um, for, for the Potomac River <laughs> to mitigate the flood potential of the Potomac River. And there is um, a sewer project, one of the biggest of its kind, a boring machine has just been bought to create um, a more effective way to allow for Alexandria to stay above um, uh, critical pollution uh, determinants. So, I mean, things are happening, I guess is my point. They happen all the time. Now, did this federal um, intervention, does do these federal monies help for us to identify more and allow for more investments in climate reduction or at least potential for um, environmental justice to become a part of the narrative as they're setting policies and spending parameters. Absolutely. This is $350 billion of potential for a lot of money to be invested at the local level for climate mitigation. Um, now, if we could kind of step back, we're, we're, we're working off of two other federal programs that also focus on equity elements and sustainability elements. ARPA, for example, and the CSLRF money, that money that's underneath ARPA, um, a lot of the measurements that they've asked for, a lot of the calculables that they've asked for was tell us how you're using this money, both in a sustainable way and a way that promotes equity. So ARPA reporting parameters incorporate those elements. IIJA, which is another $1.2 trillion in infrastructure, also has reporting requirements so far from the federal government uh, uh, asking for folks on how the money that they're investing, how the federal money that they're investing in infrastructure goes far enough into sustainability metrics, climate metrics, and um, equity elements in your community. So 
So there is a myriad ways that communities might be eligible for these federal monies. And in almost every circumstance, those federal monies are tagged back to climate in a way. So it's a very interesting kind of dynamic that we're in right now. It's going to take a lot of focus from your uh, local finance officials to get those internal controls ready to go because the application even has to outline how you are contributing to climate mitigation effects in many circumstances. I am. I'm so glad you brought that up because I find, I mean, I find that that intersection super fascinating. One thing I'm curious about um, is, is just in terms of, of resources, like people to be able to, to manage all of this, because we know that state and local governments, but, but particularly local governments are, you know, having real trouble staffing back up and, and they have all of this, you know, great opportunity, but it opportunity can also be a burden. So I'm curious, you know, like what you're hearing from your members in terms of how they're handling all these, um, you know, tasks and, and particularly in regards to those re- reporting requirements. Yeah, we're keeping our eyes on this small and mid-sized government in this circumstance. Of course, we're, we're, we are a resource for all, all governments and all of our members. But, um, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges for federal grant opportunities is knowing and understanding when those opportunities where they are and how you can apply and what gives you the edge in, in, in being successful in acquiring that federal grant. And so what GFOA has done is we've created a um, NOFO tracker. NOFO is probably one of my favorite acronyms in Washington. Um, I like to pair it with FOMO. You don't wanna have NOFO FOMO because <laughs> notices of funding opportunities only come across so often. So the NOFOs are things that the administration pulls together to say, what is the money? Who is eligible? What makes you eligible? What are the application requirements? And what is the due date? Those are the biggest things that are on side of, inside of a NOFO. And so what we've done is we've started to visit every website that has IIJA money. Now, IRA information will be coming out shortly, but right now what we're seeing is is a deluge of NOFOs coming out. And so we're trying to categorically put them out in an intuitive way on our website. So we've got a NOFO tracker. Every time there's an opportunity, every time an opportunity closes, we have an identification tag so that people can, you know, you can even word search stuff to figure out if you fit into those grants. So that's a good resource to start with. We also worry from a small government perspective, and we've, we've, we've submitted a lot of letters to the administration, actually, to, to help them understand that cost sharing and match requirements are often a big burden for your smaller communities, where you have to come up with 20% or 30% or even 10% of the grant. IIJA, the infrastructure grant, was able to find a couple of opportunities where they, they can waive the cost share requirement um, for smaller communities. We're hoping that the IRA follows suit because, again, both climate mitigation impacts for the smaller governments then would be able to not have to put so much cash up front in order to be successful in getting that opportunity. I'll have to run no faux FOMO past my 13-year-old tonight and see if it if it plays <laughs> with her. It certainly sounds like something she would say. Another, I think an important piece of this too that we've heard a lot about is the economic development opportunities, right? It's one thing to think of climate mitigation as something you kind of have to do. It's something else to think of it as as an investment opportunity. And certainly a lot of the work that's been done lately in areas like 
green stormwater infrastructure, for instance, are not just infrastructure investments, but it really is an economic and community development driver. Uh, when you talk to members and, and, and when you provide advice on how best to leverage these resources, what are you telling members about the economic development opportunity that's kind of baked into the way this federal money is flowing down? Yeah, for the IIJA, that is the infrastructure money, there was probably less focus put on program development or sourcing opportunities for the development of it. So IIJA in and of itself, again, was a bipartisan law. So it, it, it there was a lot of negotiation tactics that went into it. So the opportunities are brought. It's not just the red state, blue state um, opportunity. However, what, what we did find is that um, it is very much oriented toward infrastructure investment. So where there's build grants or raise grants or even local grants there, which is, the, which is one of the largest transportation dollars that's coming out of the IIJA, it kind of has a connection to roadways and, and bridges and sort of that thing that you think about when you think about infrastructure. What we're waiting on out of IIJA is a little bit more water, is a little bit more broadband, is a little bit more kind of the untraditional side of infrastructure that would allow for communities to think creatively outside of bricks and sticks. What else is there? How is it that you might be able to think about economic development or our opportunities for investing that money to, to, to create, to break down the barriers that exist in equity in your community? So there's a lot of different sort of um, things that we're still waiting on from the Infrastructure Act that would be more operational, more programmatic. Now, if you kind of push that aside, so that the IIJA and look at the IRA and the way that we read it, the opportunities are actually quite substantial. And in many cases, what we're reading about are opportunities that have access and equity kind of built into them. So they're more pro programmatic. The opportunities may be a little bit more in your operational budget zone. It may be something that you can uh, make, establish programs, a little less bricks and sticks, a little bit more um, investment in things that might contribute to the economic development in your community, again, with a focus on climate and sustainability and equity um, to, to sort of give you the leg up on those projects. But again, we're waiting to see the NOFOs. We're waiting to see exactly how much of what will be required in, in each one of those applications. But we can, pretty much, uh, we can pretty much guarantee that there will be those measurements built into the IRA opportunity. Emily, with all of the things that have passed over the last couple of years, I, I'm dare I ask if there's there's uh, anything in this latest uh, you know climate healthcare bill or or in any of the, the previous legislation that that GOFA has wanted in in and hasn't gotten yet. Yeah, and you know, unfortunately, it's kind of one of those things where we have received so much attention and care in the last three enormous bills. Um, that it's almost hard for me to be persnickety about it, Liz. Um, but I do have a couple things that I that I wish was built into IRA and 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 missed out by being on the chopping block floor. Um, we, as you know, are the primary advocate of Washington D.C. for um, a, a strong and meaningful uh, municipal bond market. And uh, one of the things that we lost in the 2017 tax act, the ability to tax exempt advance refund uh, bonds, 
hasn't shown up in any of these bills that have passed. Um, another uh, really important uh, tax exempt tool that was once in the toolkit and now needs to be reestablished and upped is bank qualified debt. So what we'd like to do is see that BQ ceiling raised from $10 million to $30 million and pegged to inflation thereafter, that would certainly go a long way to helping not just small communities, but also nonprofits inside of our communities to be able to borrow at a tax exempt rate as opposed to a taxable rate. We're in a rising interest rate <laughs> environment right now. Um, yeah. And it, it now is the time. In fact, six months ago should have been the time. Um, and so what we're doing is stepping up our efforts right now with the tax um, with the municipal finances in-house, chatting with them about what kind of opportunities might come along with this. It, 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 it was a bit of a challenge um, talking with uh, about the 2017 Tax Act with some of the Republicans. That was a huge, huge bill for uh, the Republican Congress to pass. But we think we've kind of branded it differently. This is an opportunity that isn't just a five-year or a three-year or one-year grant opportunity. This is the municipal bond market, which goes 15 years, 20 years, 30 years out for a project that can be financed. Um, in a very effective way with municipal bonds. So we're continuing to, to, to beat that drum. Um, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm. I know that there's a lot of knowledge in our current Congress about what the municipal bond market does. And we feel strongly that in the next Congress, we, we will have an opportunity to chat about this again. Yeah, all that makes good sense. I can just quick follow up on that, Emily. Taxable issuance was way up over the last couple of years, it's waned a little bit now in the most recent market circumstance. You can see pieces of all three of these major bills, but particularly in the IRA, that might open up a space for taxable investors to be a little bit more directly involved in the kinds of infrastructure investments that we're talking about, specifically in the climate space. Is that, I guess, a kind of a two-part question? Is is that a is that a deliberate thing? I mean, is there a strategy that says we want to open that door potentially to taxable investors, uh, or did it, or did it just kind of happen? And beyond that, you know, in, in thinking about where GFOA is at and, and what sorts of advocacy you can expect going forward, is that you know, the, the place for a taxable investor in this market, uh, an opportunity that local governments ought to be thinking about uh, alongside traditional tax exempt investors? Yeah, we're having a hard time satisfying the demands of our tax exempt investors actually right now. Uh, issuance is down about 40% and spreads are at the smallest that they've been in 30 years. Um, so there is a hot, hot, hot market upon us. But where the taxable interest kind of comes in, to your point, Justin, is a little bit more of the um, those, those international investors and maybe investors with an ESG perspective kind of coming to the fore. And by ESG, I mean, I mean environmental, social, and governance factors. We at VFOA, we've created a couple of best practices around ESG disclosure and green bond or labeled bond issuances. And, um, you know, I, we're hoping that, that by creating those free and available best practices, um, issuers that may be motivated to apply for IRA may have a potential for partial financing that may fit nicely within that green label. Um, and that's where I might, we might see some opportunity for issuers to kind of look at that as an alternative. We just want to make sure that issuers have all of the tools, all of the under, basic understanding of what that means, the disclosures, 
that will be required as a result of that. Um, go back to your, your initial question, Justin, does that mean that there will be more supply? And in particular, will there be more green supply? Um, you know, of course that's possible. This could motivate some of that. Um, but again, we're just still hoping that, uh, I think we've got a hungry, hungry market out there. <laughs> um, and we're trying to make sure that issuers have the, the, the best information that they have as they continue to um, go to the municipal bond market to, to, to create their infrastructure financing. Yeah, makes sense. When you hear from underwriters about plain old tax-exempt GOs oversubscribed five, seven, ten times, it certainly says that there's a lot of traditional unmet demand in the market. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious. So this just kind of popped into my head, but based on what we talked about earlier in terms of that increased responsibility for reporting metrics, climate stuff, those responsibilities and those requirements are why a lot of governments say, oh, I don't want to deal with green bonds. It's too too much stuff. But if they're already being motivated by the federal government on this one hand to do these you know, projects with the reporting metrics and all that, do you see any possibility that there might be more of this, you know, the green bond in, um, market, you know, coming into the municipal, municipal market? Yeah, I think where the federal reporting metrics map or are similar to the disclosure requested by the investor in green bonds or green bonds or labeled bonds to, to you know for, for a finance officer where there's no extra work that seems like something that could fall in in alignment there are other kind of costs that may come into play with green bond issuances like for example third-party verifiers or other sort of um, uh, participants in the market um, but you know I think every government is going to have to, to weigh the benefits from the cost and to make a judicious decision about whether labeling will get them more investors and will actually help with price um, so that, that of course is being that's a question that's being noodled by I would say hundreds, hundreds of governments right now, um, and certainly is top of mind for the municipal market. So Emily, with all of the, the federal legislation that has come about from, I mean, we can go, even going back to CARES, but really I'm thinking of the, the of ARPA, the infrastructure bill, the IRA, how does, how does the IRA kind of dovetail from those first two major packages? Yeah, you know, we had a lot of conversations with Treasury about the use of ARPA money and the ability to augment other federal monies using ARPA proceeds. Um, as we all know, um, ARPA has has an evolving set of rules, an evolving set of FAQs, and we're, we're constantly trying to make sure our members understand what those changes are. Um, but one of the things that they have not strayed away from too far is the use of ARPA proceeds as matching grants. So it, it, it's highly unlikely that ARPA will be able to be used as matching funds for the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, that said, I think that our constant communication with Treasury with ARPA did come to fruition a bit with the conversation about IIJA because a lot of the way that the law was written for IIJA when they said, well, we realize that we um, sort of hamstring the identity for just plain ARPA, but we allow for ARPA to match IIJA. So what we see is an evolution of sort of continuity between the two, between ARPA, which was a no-go, IIJA, which was kind of a yes, you can use those monies for matching. I think what we'll see is a nice 
uh, recognition of the fact that that 20% match, which is a bit of a challenge in many cases for smaller to mid-sized governments and their eligibility, then would be able to be used for IRA. So a nice opportunity to allow for, to your point, Liz, that dovetailing of the federal money that would allow for eligibility to expand into the, the smaller and mid-sized communities. That's great. Well, appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you. This effort is so awesome and so glad you're taking this on. And I think it's going to be an added benefit for local governments across the country. So I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Thanks again to Emily Brock from GFOA for a terrific interview about uh, the recent dynamics in Washington, D.C. and what all that means for state and local finance. Always a pleasure to have the chance to talk to Emily. So next is our extra credit segment. This is questions from you, the audience. If you have a question, send it to us at publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. And Liz and I will do our best to answer it. This time, our question comes from Mary in Wisconsin. Hi, this is Mary calling from Wisconsin. I love the podcast, by the way. My question is, why do state and local governments take so long to produce their financial statements? Isn't it a problem that so much of their financial information is really old by the time we see it? Thank you, Mary. And that is a very good question and one that um, re reporters like myself have, have often asked, uh, especially in those early days of covering state and local governments. And it is one that has, you know, sort of a, a sadly simple answer, which is, is time and resources. Um, you know, uh, governments operate very, very differently from the private sector, obviously. Uh, you know, the private sector has mandates to produce these, these reports, you know, 30, 60 days after, after the fact. With governments, I think something like, the, I think the average length of time uh, for a government to produce its audited annual financial report, or what those of us in the public finance world like to call a CAFR, uh, it takes about you know, six months if you're fast, but usually around nine months in some smaller places, a year or more to produce this report. And the reason it takes so long is, you know, there, it's not a coincidence that smaller places take longer. Again, it's a matter of resources. Um, some years ago, I, when I was at Governing Magazine, I, I wrote a little story on this and, uh, and, and I was told that particularly from the point of view of a finance official who is in charge of kind of corralling all this information, some departments are really quick, some are really slow. Uh, that can change depending on who's in charge of a department. It can take months for a department to submit its annual financial statements to the, you know, to a city finance manager who's in charge of of hurting the cats, essentially. And so in, in the audited piece of it, too, is very, very crucial. Then it takes time. So you have all this time to gather these financial statements. Then you have to go and get it audited. That also takes time. Um, in recent, I'd say post, uh, you know, great recession years, there has been more talk and kind of more, um, more stick than carrot approach, I'd say, to getting governments to move faster on this. Um, the SEC is one of the, as the Securities and Exchange Commission is, is one that has been sort of prodding this area of getting governments, state and local governments to move faster on their financial disclosures. Um, you know, in general, 
I think the real push has been that governments are very afraid on the whole to disclose financial information unless it has been audited. There's governments are super risk averse. They don't want to do anything that's going to wind up in a, in a bad news headline. And so they don't want to release information that then might turn out not to be totally accurate. Um, although we know that that tends, that can still happen right in the world of government. Um, they just want to try and plug those holes where they can. So I think risk averseness is a, is a big factor here as to why not many places will disclose financial information unless it has been audited. Some of those larger governments that have more of a direct relationship, like an investor relations websites. Um, again, this has been a move post Great Recession to have more of a, of a you know, more control over the uh, relationship between a government and its investors. Um, state governments like Massachusetts, cities like Washington, D.C. will have these investor relations websites and they will post quarterly information um, and things, information that has not yet been audited, they disclose it, it's very clear. And, um, you know, there, ha there has been movement in that direction, certainly on the whole, though, when it comes to the big, long audited financial report, those, uh, you know, I, I was looking at statistics of 2010 um, and 2015 or 16, which is around when I, I wrote that story. And then today, they aren't moving any faster. It still takes like nine months to a year. So um, I'm not sure to be, you know, really sad and depressing that that is ever going to change. But we may start, it, hopefully we'll start seeing more uh, unaudited information uh, in between then. Justin, what do you, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, great answer. And absolutely everything I've heard is is entirely consistent with that. I think the question then often comes up is what's the what's the better alternative? Like you said, certainly one is to think about unaudited information that goes out uh, more frequently that can provide taxpayers and investors and others with more contemporaneous information that can be useful in, in their decision making. There's a different or I guess a related school of thought that says maybe a better way to think about this would be to really try to streamline government financial reporting and ask ourselves, is all of that information necessary? Do we, do we need all of those detailed disclosures, as you were saying, at the departmental level that require everybody to kind of be on the bus before the bus can go forward? And, you know, as it stands right now, that's what governmental accounting is all about, right? The fundamental notion is that you are going to answer a simple question for taxpayers. And that is, did, did you, the government, do with their dollars what you said you were going to do with their dollars? And when you have enormously complex structures of local government and state government finances, many different earmarked revenue sources, many different funds that are designed to do very specific kinds of things, that's the level of transparency that accounting demands again, operating from the assumption that we want to be able to answer that question, what did you do with these dollars in a definitive kind of way? And so as long as we have that, there's an inescapable amount of complexity and it's going to take some time. So then the question becomes, well, what if we get away from some of that complexity? What if we were able to strip it down to just the really essential information and still do it audited, not necessarily, you know, don't go to a an unaudited concept, but let's just streamline what goes into financial statements in the first place. And would that have a noticeable impact on both the time it takes to produce them as well as the usefulness of that information? And there's been a little bit of research to sort of suggest that that's the case, that there's some benefits to uh, to sort of simpler, streamlined financial reporting, especially for smaller jurisdictions. In fact, there's a, a group of smaller jurisdictions that will occasionally talk about how they ought to have kind of their own set of 
financial reporting standards, that, that governmental accounting is great for larger jurisdictions, but if I'm a village of 3,500 people, there's really no need for me to be putting out a 250-page comprehensive annual financial report because it's just overkill. There's, there's no need for that much detail. So is there a simpler, streamlined way for them to do financial reporting? And that's an, you know, that's an active discussion, I think, in the, in the financial reporting community. I think the last point to make about this too, related to all of this, is there's a sort of a third branch of this debate that says, you know, the way to get around all of this is just to change the way we compile government financial information in the first place. So instead of taking information, putting it in PDFs and putting PDFs out there, what if we did what publicly traded companies do and just make everything available through XBRL, extensible business reporting language, or through purely digital means, and then have everything float around in the internet as tagged information that exists digitally rather than in documents. And while that in the world of publicly traded companies, that's been the norm for, I guess, more than a decade now, it still seems like a a big leap for a lot of, you know, particularly smaller local governments mm -hmm. to, to try to do. But, you know, we'll see, right? That technology becomes more useful and cheaper to use every day. There's a, there's a, an active group that's working on XBRL and government to try to do exactly what we're describing here. And maybe that's the way forward on mm -hmm. improving government financial reporting uh, turnaround. So great question, Mary. Thanks as always. Great answer, Liz, as always. That's our extra credit segment. If you would like your question answered, send us an email at publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. Thanks. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at Liz Farmer Tweets. And thanks as always to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.